You need a Bible this morning? Take it out and find Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9. Thanksgiving is in the rearview mirror. We made it to December. And in case you did not know, you have a whopping 23 days to get ready for Christmas. That's 23 days to get on Amazon, or if you're crazy, go to one of the stores in Odessa. We went to Target yesterday, and it was wild. I don't recommend it. So get online, order those presents. Some of you are not so much thinking about presents, but you're thinking about a particular person that you're going to be with at Christmas. Maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a Uh, one of your in-laws, something like that. And some of you are really looking forward to Christmas because you're going to get to see somebody that you haven't seen for a while and you're going to get to be with that person and hang out with them. Some of you are dreading being with that person, whoever it may be. You're thinking, oh my goodness, 23 days is all I have until I have to be around that person. And some of you, if we're honest, are probably just wishing that you could be with a particular person. Maybe it's somebody who lives far off or somebody who's passed away and you're thinking, this holiday season I won't get to be with that person. There's a lot of different emotion that goes into the holidays and how we celebrate the holidays in our culture. On Sunday mornings, over the next 23 days, we're going to spend time with Isaiah. And we've just come off a series where we talked about the minor prophets and now we just jumped over to one of the major prophets, And we're going to talk about Isaiah, and we're looking at these texts. These are the passages that we're looking at in Isaiah. All of these prophecies about Jesus, some about his birth, some about his life, some about his ministry, some about his death and his resurrection, but all prophecies from the book of Isaiah pointing us forward to think about who Jesus is, why he was born, why he lived, and why it matters for us. So this morning we're looking at Isaiah 9. It sort of piggybacks off of what we talked about last week. And so let's just start with a little bit of context. Isaiah, he was a prophet during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So if you have your Bible in Isaiah 9, just flip a few pages to the left. Look at Isaiah 1.1, the very first verse in the book. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Three good kings in that list, Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah. One bad king, Ahaz. And just like we talked about last week in Isaiah 7, the prophecy of Isaiah 9 came during the reign of Ahaz, who was a wicked king of Judah. Now, I told you about Ahaz last week. Let me just put the verses up on the screen and let's read what the Bible has to say about this guy. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. And here's the detail. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed And he made offerings 
on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. We talked about last week these high places and these hills and these trees that are referenced are all references to pagan deities, pagan shrines, pagan worship. And Ahaz was participating in all of it to the fullest extent, even to the point where he took one of his sons and offered him as a sacrifice. God was angry with Ahaz. He wanted to try to get his attention. He wanted to sort of send him a wake-up call. And so that wake-up call for Ahaz was a two-nation alliance that was coming to attack. It was Israel and Syria. Judah's cousin to the north, the nation of Israel, and the nation of Syria teamed up together, came to attack Judah. When they were attacked by Israel and Syria, God promised to preserve a remnant in Judah. And this is the heart of what we discussed last week in Isaiah 7. God was trying to get Ahaz's attention. He was punishing him for his idolatry. But he gave him this promise and he said, Ahaz, I'm going to preserve a remnant of my people. You're going to be attacked. It's going to be bad. It's going to be terrible. But I'm going to preserve a remnant. And God wanted to encourage faith in Ahab's life. And he said to Ahaz, pick a sign. So that you know I'm keeping my word. Any sign you want, as high as heaven or as low as Sheol, anything you want to happen, just name it. And I'll give you that sign. I'll show you that sign as proof that I'm really going to be with you. Ahaz heard the promise about saving a remnant, and he wasn't interested. He didn't want to just save a remnant. He wanted to save all of the nation. And he wasn't interested in God's discipline or this punishment. And he bowed up even further against the Lord. The text says in the Old Testament that in a time of his distress, he became more wicked. He turned further from the Lord. And he even said, I don't want the sign. I don't want any sort of assurance that you're with us. I don't want any sort of assurance of your presence with your people. He didn't want it. And at that point, God said, well, I'm going to give you a sign. And instead of giving it to the king, he gave it to the people. God offered his people a sign that would confirm the promise. And it was the birth of a baby boy. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. Last week, we talked about the initial fulfillment was the birth of Isaiah's son. And the ultimate fulfillment was the birth of Jesus Christ. All of that sort of brings us to chapter 9 and really to a verse that we didn't pay a lot of attention to last week. Look at Isaiah 7.17. Just to be honest with you, we ignored the verse last week. We ignored it because I knew we would come back to it this week. Isaiah 7.17, God has promised to be with them. He's going to give them this sign. He's going to take care of Israel and Syria. He's going to punish them after they attack Judah. Verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, meaning it's going to be really bad. And then he gives the explanation of why it's going to be bad. And he says the king of Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria. God says, look, I'm going to take care of all this stuff with Ahaz and Israel and Syria. They're attacking. But then it's going to get bad. Really bad. And in that day, I'm going to send the king of Assyria against Judah. And that brings us to chapter 9. It brings us to the big idea of our passage. If you're following along on the notes, here's the big idea. It should be familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave... 
his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the big idea of Isaiah 9. It's the big idea of Christmas. And it's what we're going to try to make sense of this morning. God gave his son. So take your Bible, look at Isaiah 9. We're going to read Isaiah 9 beginning in verse 1. And we're going to go all the way through verse 7. The word of God says this. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. In his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice And with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the word of God from Isaiah chapter 9. The text ends talking about government. So I just want you to think about government in the history of the world. Okay, Let's go really big picture. Human beings throughout history have come up with all sorts of governments, political arrangements. And so I'll just mention a couple of these that that I thought of this week. Let's take the ancient Egyptians. The pharaohs ruled over ancient Egypt, and their system of government was pretty simple. The pharaohs ruled, and they told the people, we are gods on earth. That's, That's it. That's all you need to know. I'm a god. Do whatever I say. That was their form of government. Down the road, a few centuries later, we meet a group of people called the Assyrians. We're going to talk about them this morning. People were terrified of the Assyrians. It wasn't so much that their leaders claimed to be gods or claimed to be deity. It's just that they used terror and unprecedented cruelty to make people scared of them. And they thought if we keep them scared enough, then they'll do whatever we say. And for a time, it worked. Think of the ancient Greeks. They thought they were so sophisticated. They rejected all the barbarism. They said, no, we're, we're educated, we're intellectuals, we're philosophers. And they tried to, to rule with superior minds. And for a while it lasted. But then came the Romans, and they just had a bigger army. And they just said, our army's the best. No one can stop our soldiers. And through the force of military, they tried to exercise their will over the entire world. And for a season, it worked. 
Jump to the medieval period. You had kings who talked about the divine right of kings. God has put these kings on the throne, so the kings said. That was convenient for the kings. And it was really not all that convenient for the serfs. And so you had this system of feudalism where the kings ruled and they said, God put us here and you just have to do whatever we say. We could fast forward, we could talk about Marx and Engels and socialism and communism and how they tried to control the masses in in this way. Maybe we should just end up with Winston Churchill and say this, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other forms that have been tried from time to time. That's pretty honest, right? I mean, it's lousy. It's lousy because we, the people, are lousy. Every form that's been tried has has worked for a season, and then it didn't, and it had some advantages, and it had some disadvantages. And I'll be honest, I kind of agree with Churchill. Give me a choice. I'm going to pick democracy every time. I like where we live. I like the political system that our founding fathers put into place. I like the fact that they knew we were wicked people and they put checks and balances into our system of government so that one group couldn't have more power than the other and everything would try to, try to remain stable. But let's be honest. We have turmoil in the political realm. And it's nothing new. Go back and read some of the accounts of the the founding fathers and the the early years of our nation. Political turmoil is absolutely nothing new to the the United States of America. We've ended up after 200 years with a a group of ruling elites. It really wasn't the intent when they set the whole thing up, but that's sort of what we got, a, a political class of people who run the nation by and large. We have laws on the books of this country that are very wicked and immoral. We fought wars at different times in history, some that very much needed to be fought, others that didn't at all need to be fought. You look back on it and you say, yeah, has it worked? Yes. Maybe for a season. Will it work forever? We don't know. The flaw in it is me and you, and the result is turmoil. I just want you to understand that the nation of Judah when Isaiah spoke the words of Isaiah 9, was a nation dealing with political turmoil. Their king was wicked, unbelievably wicked, burning his sons in the valley across from the capital, that kind of wicked. They were being attacked by a two-nation army. Their, Their neighbors to the north in Israel teaming up with Syria. They were under attack. And to make all of that worse, God says this in Isaiah 7, 17, there's a day coming that you've never experienced. There's nothing to compare it to. And he says the king of Assyria is going to march on your nation. Into all of that turmoil, the prophet opens his mouth, And on behalf of the Lord, he offers hope. The hope that he offers in Isaiah 9, especially in the first five verses, is that there's going to be a great reversal. Things are going to be bad. It's going to be be like nothing you've experienced since the day that Ephraim and, and Judah split into two nations. It's going to be unprecedented. But then he offers hope and he says things are going to turn around in the most unlikely of ways. There's going to be a reversal of fortunes. Take your Bible and look at Isaiah 9. Look at the first five verses. Verse 1. Here's the, rever- the reversal. There's gloom and there's anguish and there's contempt for the nation, but that's going to be reversed 
and the nation will experience glory once again. Things are going to change. There's going to be a turnaround. Look at verse 2. It's dark, and there's going to be light. There's deep darkness, and a light is going to shine. Look at verse 3 and 4. He talks about oppression and a burden and the rod of the oppressor. But then he says, the nation is going to increase in joy. There's going to be a celebration and there's going to be a harvest. All of this oppression is going to change and be turned to joy. Look at verse 5. He acknowledges that there's this tramping warrior and in battle tumult and the garments have been rolled in blood. But then he says, they're all going to be burned as fuel for the fire. Right? This is prophetic language, and the prophet is trying to say to the people, yes, it's going to get bad. It's bad now, and it's going to get worse, but God's going to change it. There's going to be a reversal of fortunes. That happened. It happened long before Jesus was ever born. In fact, the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy was Hezekiah and the defeat of Assyria. It's one of the greatest stories in the entire Bible. It's a story that some of you may know, but some of you have maybe never heard of at all. Isaiah 7:17, the king of Assyria will come. Guess what? He came. Just like God said he would. Like you just step back and you marvel at the way God is sovereign over all the pieces of this puzzle. He's sovereign over Judah, he's sovereign over Israel and Syria who are tacking together. He's sovereign over the fact that he's going to dispose of them when he's done with them, and he's sovereign over the fact that the next attack is going to come from Assyria. God's not guessing at any of this. He's the one making it all happen. And the king of Assyria marched on the city of Jerusalem. He brought with him 185,000 soldiers. And they set up camp right around Jerusalem. Hezekiah was the king. All right, this is down the road. The fulfillment is a little bit down the road. Past Ahaz. Ahaz is dead. His son Hezekiah is the king. The Assyrians set up right outside Jerusalem, 185,000 of them. Sennacherib walks out to the front lines in the hearing of everyone in the city of Jerusalem. He marches right up to the gate and he blasphemes Yahweh. He mocks Yahweh. He makes fun of the people because they trust in Yahweh. Right? Hezekiah had led a, a revival in the city. And he says, do you really think that Yahweh the Lord is going to protect you from me? Don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't listen to him. He's lying to you. All of the other gods of the nations have fallen before me and I'm going to march through this city just like I've done all the others. There's Hezekiah with a choice to make. Would he follow in the footsteps of his granddad and his great-granddad and trust the Lord? 185,000 Assyrians sitting right outside your city. Or would he follow in the footsteps of Ahaz, his father, and try to buy his way out of this problem? That's a tough call. Hezekiah made the right call. Ahaz made the wrong call. His son Hezekiah made the right call. This is what Ahaz, uh, excuse me, Hezekiah did. He went back into the city. He told everybody to calm down. He prayed, prayed to the Lord, asked for the Lord's help. He called the prophet Isaiah, and he talked with Isaiah. And you know what he did next? He went to sleep. He went to bed. Isaiah said, God's going to take care of this. You don't need to do a thing. So he went to sleep. 
That night, the angel of the Lord went out into the camp of the Assyrians and slaughtered 185,000 of them in their sleep. And when Hezekiah woke up in the morning, there they were, dead. Talks about it right here in Isaiah 9, where it says, The boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This mighty army marched against them. God protected them, and all they had to do was burn them in the fire. That was the immediate fulfillment. This great reversal you read about in Isaiah 9, 1 to 5, it happened in Hezekiah's lifetime, right? They were in the most dire of situations, their very existence being threatened, and at the very last moment, in a very unsurprising way, God swooped in and saved the day. And there's a clue in in chapter 9 that it might happen in a surprising way. Look at what it says at the end of verse 4. The yoke and the staff and the rod, you have broken them as on the day of Midian. Do you remember when the Israelites defeated the Midianites? It happened in a most unlikely way. There was a very reluctant leader named Gideon who had a very tiny army. Most of them got sent home. And they went out and they surrounded the enemy at night and they basically had torches. And they screamed as loud as they could and the Midianites were sent into a panic and they killed each other. And they didn't have to fight at all. God won the battle. He won the victory. In the most unsurprising, or excuse me, in the most surprising, unexpected way. And the same thing happened in Hezekiah's lifetime. It was just like on the day of Midian. But then you come to Isaiah 9, 6. And seven. Just look at those verses again. Verse one to five, you can see, yes, in Hezekiah's day, these things, these things were, were fulfilled. But look at verse six and seven. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Listen, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, was a good king, but he doesn't fit that description. He doesn't match up. And if you want to see the fulfillment, not the immediate fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 9, you just have to keep reading until you get to the Gospel of Luke. And this is what you read in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Luke's talking about the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. It's not Hezekiah in the defeat of Assyria. It's Jesus Christ in the defeat of sin and death. 
Yes, there's an immediate fulfillment in Hezekiah's lifetime, but there's also a greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the defeat of sin and death. There's a key word you need to see in Luke chapter 2 and Isaiah 9. It connects the two passages together, and it's the word born. Someone was born. That's Christmas, right? Look at, look at what we read in Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born. And Luke says it this way in Luke 2, 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Somebody was born to change our reality. This child was human. He was born like any other child was. It was a, a normal birth experience. But he was more than human. He was not just human. He was also divine. And he was all of the titles we read about in Isaiah 9. The Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This baby that was born in Bethlehem on the first Christmas grew up and he had a glorious future. It was a great reversal from how he started out. He started out so poor he was born in a trough, in a barn, No one took notice, and he ends up being all of the things that Isaiah describes. It's worth stopping to remind ourselves as we walk into the Christmas season that if your idea of Jesus is just a cute, cuddly baby, you've got to grow past that. That's not enough. If your idea of Jesus is some sort of cool, hip teacher who went around telling stories and touching people and healing people... That's not enough. You've got to move past that. You've got to grow beyond that. If your idea of Jesus is just some suffering Jewish man hanging on a Roman cross, that's good, but it's not enough. You've got to move past that. Because what the Bible tells us about Jesus is, yes, he was born. Yes, he healed people. Yes, he taught people. Yes, he suffered and died on a cross. But he is very much alive today. And just like he has been for all of eternity, he is all of the things that Isaiah is describing even now and forever. Luke tells us that the baby we celebrate is Christ the Lord, the wonderful counselor. A good counselor listens. They don't do all the talking, but they listen and they care. They have concern for the people that they're interacting with. And Isaiah is saying Jesus is that kind of counselor. He cares about his people. You may be walking into the Christmas season feeling like God has forgotten me. He doesn't care for me. I'm of no concern to him. And Isaiah is saying, he's the wonderful counselor. He cares. He's the mighty God. He's able to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. I can't stop him. You can't stop him. Assyria couldn't stop him. Israel couldn't stop him. Ahaz couldn't stop him. He's the mighty God. Isaiah says he's everlasting. Who he was in eternity past is who he was in Isaiah's day. It's who he was in Bethlehem. It's who he is today. It's who he'll be for eternity. There's no variation or shadow or change within him. He's the Prince of Peace. He came to bring peace. Not in our sort of truncated idea of peace means there's no fighting 
But in the Jewish sense, the biblical sense of wholeness and completeness, he came to fix what our sin ruined, both within us and in all of the creation. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. How do we apply it? What does it mean to us? What do we do with it today? Let me give you a few thoughts. At Christmas, we celebrate God entering our world so that we could enter his. At Christmas, we celebrate God entering our world that we might enter his. The scope of this is just unimaginable. And over the next 23 days, you're going to watch movies and and see things on the internet and get cards and have all sorts of reminders about all of the stuff that goes along with Christmas. And some of it has absolutely nothing to do with what we're really celebrating. And I'm not saying you need to cut all that stuff out or you're going to be some godless pagan. I'm just saying remember what we're really celebrating. God entering our mess so that we could spend eternity with him. That's what we're talking about. Isaiah 9, 6. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. God walked into our mess both feet on the ground. He came to do for us what we would never be able to do for ourselves. The Bible describes that as grace. God giving you the opposite of what you deserve. God doing for you what you would never be able to do for yourself. He gave us this child. It's, it's described in John 3.16. You see the same word. Isaiah 9.6, a son was given to us. John 3.16, God loved the world to such an extent that he gave, same word, he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the big idea of the passage. That's the big idea of Christmas. That's the big idea of everything that we're celebrating over the next 23 days is that God entered our mess so that we would be able to live with him forever. That's the hope of Christmas. Secondly, I need you to understand, I want you to understand that increased joy is found in the rule of King Jesus. Increased joy is found in the rule of King Jesus. If you still have your Bible open in Isaiah 9, I just want you to look at two verses, and I want you to circle a couple of words if you like to make notes and and mark things in your Bible. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 3. It says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. Circle the word increased. You've increased the joy of your people. And then draw a line over to verse 7 that says of the increase, same word, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Circle the two times that Isaiah uses the word increase. Draw a line between them and then sort of just drill it down into your brain and understand this. Increasing joy in your life is only found when Jesus begins to rule and reign in your life more and more and more and more. Isaiah is connecting those two ideas. Do you want to have joy? you want to have ultimate joy? true, lasting happiness and peace and contentment and fulfillment. Do you want that kind of joy in your life? Every American I know would say yes. I just want to be happy. I just want to know joy. And Isaiah says, here's where you find it. In Jesus ruling and reigning more and more 
and more. And in our minds, those two things don't belong together. From a very young age, we're conditioned in our culture to think along these lines. You will find joy when you become who you want to be. You will find joy when you follow your heart and do whatever it is you want to do in life. You will know joy only when you do everything that's sort of desire in your heart or or wish in your mind. You just chase all of those dreams and that's when you find joy. And Isaiah is saying, I've got something much older and much truer for you to live your life by. It's not chasing every whim of your heart, but it's submitting to the rule of Jesus. And we think, submit, I don't want to submit, I don't want someone to rule over me. What we have to understand is that the rule of Jesus is not like the pharaohs, or the emperors, or the dictators. It's not like this political party or that political party or this political system or that political system. The good ones, the bad ones, it's not like any of that. Isaiah says, this one that will come, this child to be born, he'll grow up and the increase of his government will have no end. And as he rules more and more and more, you will experience more and more and more joy. Isaiah is saying, that's going to go on for all of eternity. Jesus rules and he reigns and it continues and it continues. And when you submit to that and experience that, you get more and more and more joy. Increased joy is found in the rule of King Jesus. One last thought. Salvation is something that God accomplishes. Salvation is something God accomplishes. Keep your Bible open. Don't close. Look at Isaiah 9 at the very end of verse 7. There's some great stuff in Isaiah 9. There's some beautiful thoughts and some beautiful writing. When he talks about a child being born and a son being given and the government will be on his shoulder. I mean, that's hope-filled talk. And when you get to the stuff about wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, they just roll off the tongue. We're familiar with them at Christmas and we sing about them. We say, oh, that's great. Here's the best part of the whole passage. It's the very last phrase, the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. I want you to think about somebody you know who's passionate about something. Somebody you know who's passionate about something in your life, in their life. Maybe they're passionate about a hobby. They like to you know, take photographs, or they like to play golf, or they like to build things, or they like to do crossword puzzles. I don't know. You think about people, they, they love doing those things. They're passionate about those things. Maybe when I ask you to think about someone who's passionate about something, maybe you think of a parent or a grandparent, and you say, oh man, they're passionate about their kids. I got to look at pictures and I got to hear stories and I got to get updates and they're always bragging and boasting and they are all in on their kids. Maybe it's a sports team. Lots of big games this last weekend and maybe you've had to listen to a Cowboys fan all week. We're really confident right now. I mean, we're going to win the Super Bowl and we're zealous for it and we're excited and you just roll your eyes and you say, ah, Cowboys fans. You know, the Bible is telling you here and elsewhere that God is passionate about something. 
He's zealous for something. And it's not America's team. Eh, the hole in the roof so God can watch the cow. No, that's not what we're talking about. It's not even you or me. I hate to crush your Christmas and take you out of the center of the equation and say that you're the apple in his eye and he just so smitten with you. Here's what he's zealous for. Here's what he's passionate about. Here's what the Bible says gets God excited. When he makes a promise to save his people, and he says, I'm going to do it in a way that you would never decide to do it. I'm going to do it in the most unexpected way. And I'm going to do it, and I'm going to keep my promise, and I'm going to save you, not because you're so lovable, but because I want to get the glory in it. That's what God's passionate about. That's what he's zealous for. Keeping his promises to save his people in a way that he gets all the glory. And Isaiah lays all this out for the people of Judah. These people who are living in political turmoil. And he says, look, the Assyrians are going to come. Don't worry. There's going to be a great reversal. God is going to swoop in and save the day. And it's going to be amazing. And then he points us even beyond that battle. Beyond that moment. And he says, God's going to do something even greater than that. He's going to send a baby. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the rule and the reign of that king will have absolutely no end. And as he rules and he reigns, you're going to experience more and more and more joy. And the best news about all of it is the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. It's not up to me as a preacher to bring it about. It's not up to you as a follower of Jesus to make sure that it happens. It's not up to our church or the church down the street to be good enough to make sure that God comes through on his word. Because the prophet says God has made the promise and God is going to keep it because this is what he's passionate about. It was true in Isaiah's day. It was true in Bethlehem. It's true in Odessa, Texas in 2018. God has promised to save his people and to do it in the most remarkable, most unexpected, most surprising way. To do it in a way that he gets all the glory and we get all the joy in it. And the guarantee of all of it is not on us. It's on him. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Because he's passionate about it and he's excited about it. You understand, if we could fast forward the tape about 10 billion years into eternity, Jesus has come back, everything has been resolved, the new heavens, the new earth, we're down the road 10 billion years in eternity, we're gathered around the throne singing together, no one's going to be standing next to anybody patting them on the back, giving them a attaboy, you did real good. It's a good thing you, yeah, way to go. We're going to be standing next to each other in 10 billion years around the throne. We're going to be singing the praises of God, and we're going to look at each other, and we're going to say, God did this. We didn't do it. God did it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts brought this about. God kept his promise, and God gets all the glory. That's our theme for all eternity. And if it's our theme for all eternity, it ought to be our theme today.